0: Forge family last time we were together we worked through the two paragraphs that are in Ephesians 5 the Bible translation committees and editors label they label those paragraphs and they have merit uh, one was labeled walk in the light and the second was labeled walk in wisdom and we began with Paul's imagery of the illumination of the temple at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles with the tall candelabra that they filled with there were four of them. They filled it with 65 liters of oil and set them alight, and it, it, light, it lit the whole, the whole interior court of the, the temple as well as a lot of the outside, outside those walls in Jerusalem. And the priests would take up the torches and sing and whirl and dance. And uh, it was only until the, the torches burned out and the oil disappeared and the, the candelabra went poof, da- dark, that they stopped that. For Israel, their knowledge of the light was in the past. For Paul and the churches in Asia Minor, it was in the present. Paul declared that those who had come out of darkness to Jesus were now light in the Lord. That walk in the light of the Lord produced goodness, righteousness, and truth, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, So Paul urged those believers to not participate, not partner with darkness. And then Paul turned to church discipline of the churches of Asia Minor, setting the stage for purity that was the result of not partnering with darkness. So if darkness was being practiced by someone in the church, some deviant thing, some wicked thing, then they were confronted privately over a significant period of time, and and it you know, called and invited, come back to Jesus, come back to the light. But if that individual refused and just resisted that reproof, then their darkness was to be exposed to the church. And Paul was just as strong in his regard to any of the contact with practitioners of occult magic, which is exceeding common, as well as those who depended on that, just like, you know, the people who get up every day, open, open the newspaper, go to the Zodiac column and, and read, what do I have for today, sort of thing. Well, that was, that was very typical, you know, that they would lean in and try and have magic work on their behalf. Paul said, don't have anything to do with it. And he did urge the church to turn on the light and see darkness flee. <clears throat> and then there was a shift in focus of wisdom, walked out in strategic, opportune ways and at a strategic, opportune time. There was also a call to pause and look inward for the correction and affirmation and approval of Holy Spirit. Paul shifted further to speak of the will of the Lord that those believers were to walk out. Their walk in the light of Christ and the wisdom of Christ would result in sanctification. That second section on, on salvation, and the present tense, present tense salvation. Um, and when they did that, they would... Experience the will of God for them. In this uh, final, in his final charges to the churches, he, he wrote um, uh, four verses, um, eighteen through twenty-one, and uh, he started with, "Okay, be filled with the Holy Spirit, not with wine. Make melody in your heart to God by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, and then in verse twenty The third way that they were to demonstrate being filled with the Holy Spirit was to give thanks in all things in the name of of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, the Spirit who fills us up, who animates us into the kingdom of God and our sanctification, we want more. Every moment, Lord, that we find ourselves poised in some need or confusion, we would turn to you for that filling of pure spirit to draw on wisdom and light. Come, Holy Spirit. Walk within us as we live out our life. Lord, we want Jesus to be seen in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I mentioned in closing last time, I did not include verse 21 of chapter 5 because I believe it leads into the text of the next paragraph. If you recall, Greek manuscripts, the best ones we have are all capital letters, no punctuation, and it is up to the translator, interpreter to figure out where that punctuation goes. So for me, I think it, the, the, the next paragraph begins with verse 21, not 22, okay? And it, here's the reason. It reads, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, Certainly, as the fourth evidence of being filled with Holy Spirit, as, as present with, in the churches of Asia Minor, um, it was that willingness to voluntarily place yourself under authority, the influence, the sweetness, the maturity of another one, in deep reverence, willing to give up your rights. Uh, and that's what made the church work in Asia Minor. It just spread. Okay. However... I believe that this verse acts as the grammatical anchor for the next text that follows on husbands and wives. It does so using the rule of first mention, which for those who translate from Greek to English, you look for first mention in the text. Here it is. And it dominates the context of Paul's teaching on marriage. So we begin verse 21 and continue until through verses 22 to 33 of chapter 5. So we begin with verse 21. It says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The word subject or submit in Greek is a form of hupotasso, which is the willing placement of oneself under authority. Now, you see that really prominently in, in military, you know, military orders. Privates, they, they just line up. Sergeants face them. Our sergeants stand in front of them and face the lieutenants who face the sergeants of the group, and then the majors and captains and colonels and generals and things. They're all in ranks, okay? And it, that's a, a physical representation of just voluntarily, here I am, this is my qualification, this is as far as I can go, I'm here I am. Okay, this is utterly necessary practice of being voluntarily subject to one another that rules in the church, and equips young men and women to consider courtship. If they discover that such subjugation and submission to one another is awkward, painful, ego-challenging, they have no business getting engaged. Part of that's maturity in Christ. Part of that has to do with respect for the other. Learn the lessons well before marriage, family. Learning them after marriage can be painful. So verse 22 launches us into Paul's gentle commands to wives and husbands. Now, think with me about the shift in Paul himself. Years before, Paul had written 1 Corinthians, and chapter 7 had some of his own struggles laid out. He began saying that he wished that the unmarried in the churches, the churches in Corinth, he desired those unmarried individuals to remain unmarried just like he was. Now, he may have been convinced that the second coming of Jesus was imminent. It was like on him. It was going to happen any moment. So, whoa, let's stop right there. Paul was a Pharisee prior to conversion. Paul was a Pharisee, and tradition has him as a voting member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council over Israel. To be a Pharisee, to be a member of the ruling council, he had to be married. And that's where speculation starts. Paul, having once been married, may have had his marriage ripped from him, torn away at his conversion on the Damascus Road. You know, his wife may have said, I'm having nothing to do with you. You're obviously crazed. And, and she was the one who severed the deal. She could, she could appeal that to the Sanhedrin. And others to, that he was cut off because of his conversion. <clears throat> now, finding himself single, with a zeal for the gospel, he he desired others to join with him. You know, in that sense of let's go to the world. We carry good news, and a married individual could be con- um, just wasn't available to do that. Single adults could go with Paul, travel easily. Married. Married individuals had had spouses and they needed to care for them and they weren't available for that sort of, you know, let's go, oh, let's go walk a thousand miles together and minister. <clears throat> now, um, nine years have passed. A third missionary journey has, has come and gone. And Paul recognizes that the Asian, the Asia, churches in Asia Minor are exploding and they are, and they are, Facing significant difficulties because they're in a situation where the pagan model for marriage had women as disposable and men, uh, husbands, if you will, free to continue practicing promiscuity. And so Paul, as an, uh, uh, and as an apostle, um, is moved to address godly, quote, house law, unquote, or what Martin Luther labeled as Hausstoffel. Okay, and I, let me toss in a little bit here. I, my, this is more my observation than anything the scripture has to say. And so I'll, I'll edit it, you know, I'll, I'll introduce it that way. I think today's apostles have some measure of the gifting of the other four members of the, the five fold ministry. The apostle has some capacity to be a prophet, a pastor, an evangelist, and, and, a, um, and a teacher. All at once, as the needs arise, I think the other four are more limited. They don't have that breadth. Okay, but here it says Paul in my text anyway. Paul's apostolic heart was moved to address godly uh, borders for marriage in inside these new homes in the churches in Asia Minor. So, verse twenty-two says, "Wives, dot 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 to your husbands." Literally, that's what's Phrased in Greek. You know, it is the modern translators who put the words in there so it makes sense. And if the words they put in says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What that says is grammatically, you can see immediately that Paul intended verse 21 to be the controlling verb structure. It's just passed down. Okay? It controls his following Phrases: The wives in the churches are to voluntarily be subject and submissive to their husbands, just as they were sub- subject and submissive to the Lord, with respect and honor. There, That's where the teaching starts for husbands and wives, and continues on in chapter 6 with masters and slaves and parents and children. This is not to say that wives are to worship and unilaterally obey their husbands. Rather, the wife comes into the marriage with a preset commitment to be submissive to her husband. Now, right there, Paul blows up ancient and modern marriage. That word, submissive, rankles modern women. And that quote might sound something like, I might consider it a 50-50 partnership, but never... Submission. Now, I conclude that that's perhaps the words and thoughts of a woman who is not submissive to the Lord Jesus as Lord. Paul continues in verse 23 with the reason for submission to the husbands. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, husband, the husband is declared head, of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church, the body of Christ, ultimately the bride of Christ. The husband is like Christ as head, as leader, but the husband is unlike Christ because the Savior is the one who Jesus as Savior saved both husband and wife. <clears throat> so, headship. The husband has spirit given authority, dignity and is being equipped in leadership by Holy Spirit. All that flows from the model and the mystery of Christ as head of the church. Headship is not a license to rule, to dominate, to be overbearing, demanding, harsh. Rather, headship is to be servant leadership. That carries immense responsibilities. Now, the fall obviously introduced confusion and division between God and man, but it also interrupted the relationship between husband and wife. They were alienated from each other. The Danvers statement out of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood insightfully comments on marriage in America. Quote, In the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility, meaning she takes over or she's a doormat, one of the two, the two extremes. When godly headship breaks down, families crumble. So what does godly leadership by husbands look like? To lead and not to boss or rule to resist the temptation to any form of self-centered demanding, to learn to discern his wife's needs and strive to meet them, to recognize his wife's giftedness and identify ways to support her and give her opportunity to express her gifts, to be responsible for seeking his wife's input on casting vision and direction for the family oriented around God's kingdom purposes. To take the initiative in conflict resolution to concentrate on doing what this passage speaks about his role rather than to insist that his wife fulfill her role see he things that would be a whole lot better if you just submit is essentially the sense of that passage the statement paul Further explains in verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now here, hupotasso, this voluntary submission, likewise asserts itself again. The willingness to serve, to submit to Christ as members of the body, is the model for how wives are to serve and to submit. There's nothing here regarding spiritual inequality between husbands and wives. The house law, if you will, speaks of differing roles. Now, note, please, should there be a demand made on the wife for, quote, unconditional obedience? Okay, that can lead to a violation of biblical principle, to compromise her relationship with Christ, to violate her conscience, to compromise the care, nurture, and protection of her children to enable or facilitate her husband's sin to subject her to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. That unconditional obedience must have holy boundaries, must have a filter, okay? Let me elaborate. Abuse is abuse is abuse. To criticize, to shout down, to demean, to strike— to sexually violate the wife, it's all the same. It's all abuse. All the above comes from a husband who is looking for servile obedience. This is not the essence of hupotasso. But rather, the wife is to obey the husband out of her. Honor, respect, and obedience to Christ. That is the filter for the wife for the phrase be submissive in all things. That filter makes allowance for the wife to stand aside from demanded obedience that leads to sin. Verse 25-26 has Paul instructing husbands. You'll note here, there's very little direct comment from Scripture to the wife, and a lot of comment to the husbands. Okay? Guys, got it? Okay? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word for love, here it is in a command form, and it is rooted in agapao, the Greek word for unconditional, unselfish, unmerited love. Yes, the husband retains sexual love for his wife and had deep affection and care for her, but this is not what Paul and Holy Spirit is focused on. The love the husband is commanded to express for his wife is self-sacrificial a love that is at any moment willing to lay down his priorities for the sake of his wife. Now, Paul says the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves his church. Now, I'm in debt debt to a man named Clint Arnold, who uh, has given me this next section, which I found, like, I can't improve on this. This is really excellent, okay? Okay. So, following this list speaks of agape love from husband to wife. The husband is to grow in a willingness to deny himself to ensure his wife's well being and care. The husband is to care for her in a compassionate and loving way when she is sick, to be willing to lovingly care for his wife as long as she should need it if she would become disabled or terminally ill, and when she has nothing to offer him in return, to resist the impulse to spend money on things that are outside of the priorities that the two have established for the household, to be vigilant to guard against tones and language that could wound his wife, to spend regular quality time with his wife and consistently make her feel precious to him, to take every precaution not to to demean his wife by looking at other women in inappropriate ways and desiring them in his heart to deny himself of the desire to relax when his wife needs to talk or engage. The shift in the middle of the verse moves to the work done by Christ and Holy Spirit to set apart the church, the believers, and see them washed clean by the washing of regeneration and renewing by Holy Spirit. Now, there's some scholars that hold That that all that all takes place when you get baptized. And other scholars say, "Oh no, that the word of God needs to be read over the wife every day so that she's washed clean." Well, all those are those are both good things, and they're both in the Scripture. Fine, but you can't defend them from this passage. Okay, verse twenty-seven says gives us the result of that washing of regeneration, that cleansing away of all sin for all time in the action of salvation. Quote, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So the result of Christ giving himself up will be the completion of the sanctification of his bride, the church, that he will present to himself the church glorious. That's how it reads in Greek. This glory rises from the purity of lifestyle that's imparted by Holy Spirit and practiced by the bride so that there's no stains, no lack, no wrinkle. Instead, there is whole and holy results from the preparation of the bride of Christ. Verse 28 to 30 turns back to the husband's responsibilities. So husbands are also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. So, another way to say this is that the husband's body is not his own, it belongs to his wife. Likewise, her body is not hers, but rather his. She has a say in how he loves his body, and he has a say in how she loves her body. So, you know, simple things like are they overweight? Are they addicted to television? Or romance novels, you know, do they get enough sleep? I mean, just simple questions, simple discerning things about how men love their wife and love themselves. So men are not good at judging how their bodies function. Yes, we are to love and care for your, to love and care for your wife as if she were your own body and, and your body and self. Again, the love word is agapao, it's self-sacrificial love. The template is the love of Christ for the church. So next, Paul harks back to Genesis two twenty four, to the word of God regarding Adam and Eve coming together as one. Verse 31 says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, This does not speak of abandoning parents to their fate. This is a script there's a scriptural mandate for the care of elderly parents the honoring of parents the listening to them for their counsel here the leaving is to establish a new family and then we come to the cleaving of a man to his wife and the sense of that is the gluing together in such a manner that um, they are they are inseparable and to separate that would uh, would produce Terrible, utter, utterly destructive damage to both of them. And the illustration of that is like taking apart a piece of plywood. Okay, What do you have when you're done? Splinters, shards, pieces. It's all glued together and it's solid. But when you take a piece of plywood apart, it's utterly un, you know, it's damaged and not useful. <clears throat> we all have a sense of what becoming one flesh is or might be like. The sexual union is awesome and mystical, but the original Hebrew used that one-flesh phrase to speak of unshakable loyalty as well. Verse 32 to 33 are Paul's concluding remarks to husbands and wives in the churches of Asia Minor. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Let each individual, and here that's a male, okay, among you, who uh, you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now, while seeming repetitive here, Paul tosses in the word respect, which is also translated fear, awe, and reverence. Paul's not putting his thumb down on the wives. He's reminding them that that's how they already relate to the Lord Jesus. So, ladies, make that transfer. And men, you too, through the love and power of the Holy Spirit, you love your wives. All right, Forge, uh, while it's high privilege to revisit these verses with you, they're they're really, you know, I'm sure you've heard them multiple dozens of times. Okay? And, and studied them, and maybe they were taught to in premarital counseling, etc. Okay? They're also convicting. No husband gets it right all the time. No wife gets it right all the time. Janice and I had only one time in 48 years of marriage where we were solidly, we just totally disagreed with each other, what we were going to do with a house church that we had started in our living room on the coast side. I had one sense of going one direction, and she had the sense of staying and building off of what we had done. And uh, after prayer and discussion, she came uh, tearfully a little and, and said, uh, you're head of this household, you're uh, head of this marriage, the decision is yours to make, and step back. Now, that's, that's how it works. You get your, the intelligent input and the passion from the wife. Okay, and then the head of the house has to make the decision in those situations where you're just blocked. Okay, and the Lord did good things. Paul is in this. Um, he's saying, um, "Seize this, use this, have it, have it be yours personally." My prayer for each of us is that you discover the intimacy of the Lord and the spirit-empowered ability to submit one to another in the fear of the Lord. From there, he can lead you anywhere. Let's pray. Lord God, this is mystery and reality wrapped in the inner life of the church, the body of Christ. For some, marriage will come. For others, ministry and service will come will fill that role of coming to be all that the Lord desires of you. You alone, Lord, lead the way. We bow and say thank you. And we choose to follow your footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen.